You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I want to tell you a little story uh, that uh, Tony De Milo tells in his book called The Song of the Bird. Here's how it goes. A man found an eagle's egg and put it in a nest of a barnyard hen. The eaglet hatched with this brood of chicks and grew up with them. All his life, the eagle did what the barnyard chick did, thinking he was a barnyard chick. He, he, he scratched the earth for worms and insects. He clucked and cackled. And he would thrash his wings and fly a few feet into the air and land. Years passed. And the eagle grew very old. One day he saw a magnificent bird above him in the sky. It, it flew graciously despite the powerful wind currents. And the eagle looked up in awe and asked, Who is that? Well, that's the eagle, the king of the birds, the chicken said. He belongs to the sky. We belong to the earth. We are chickens. So the eagle lived and died a chicken. But that's what he thought he was. When we do not see the worth and the value of our human bodies and our humanity, or we create some sort of division between the physical and the spiritual, the secular and the sacred, we do something that God Himself never did. We undervalue our humanness. We don't mean to. But you hear it in phrases like, I'm only human. Remember we talked about that last week. Which is usually something we say when we are trying to apologize for a mistake we made or to express our imperfections. Well, I'm only human. And that phrase tells us that we believe somehow that being human is lesser. It's a lesser reality. And last week I said that I believe that this tendency is rooted in our lack of understanding what it means to be human, to be in our bodies as embodied people with its pigmentations and, its, and all of its wonder, however it's shaped and made. But about forgetting that in our bodies, we are made in the image of God, that within us is the image of God manifesting itself in our human bodies. And I suggested that as a result, we've sometimes missed the fullness of God. We've missed the fullness of God revealed to us in the person of Christ. And we have inadvertently missed living full lives. Yet God came to us in a human body. A dark-skinned Palestinian Jewish body. That's how God appeared to the world. Very concretely. Very particularly. So much so that Paul even said in Colossians 2 verse 9, the fullness of God lives in Christ's body. In Jesus' dark-skinned Palestinian Jewish body, Paul, a rabbi, a Christian rabbi, would say, the fullness of God lives there. When Jesus was resurrected, he was resurrected in a body. When he ate fish, it didn't fall out. He wasn't a ghost. It was a body. 
Jesus is an embodied God and created us with bodies, as fully embodied people. Paul would later, would before even he wrote that in Colossians 2, he'd say in Colossians 1, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. See, the Scriptures tell us over and again, in different ways, that God came to us in a dark-skinned Palestinian Jewish body and preached in the synagogues and dem- synagogues, gogs, goodness, you got a long day ahead of me, and demonstrated the presence of God's kingdom in Galilee. He proclaimed the forgiveness of sins, practiced hospitality with sinners. He made the blind see and the disabled able. He touched lepers, welcomed the unwelcomable lawbreakers. He hugged the hurting, held the children. And like I remembered us last week, like I reminded us last week, we can know, we can know how much God loves and values creation and our physical world because He created it that way. And we can know how much God loves and values our humanness because He literally in our faith became one. Now, like I said last week, and I want to unpack more today, the consequences to undervaluing our humanity and our embodiedness is real. And if we're not careful and thoughtful, we end up like the eagle in our story, not living into the fullness of who God created us to be. And one of the consequences of this is that we divide our existence into manageable compartments. We call it compartmentalization. It's like ten syllables. Say it with me. Compartmentalization. We manage our lives in these little compartments. Here's what Robert Bella said in his book, Habits of the Heart. He said the most distinguishing feature of 20th century American society is, and I quote, the division of life into a number of separate functional sectors public and private, home and workplace, work and leisure, white collar and blue collar. And you hear it in our language. We say, well, here's my spiritual life and my work life and my home life. We call it work-life balance. We have these compartments that we place life into, and we do it as an innate survival technique to really just try to manage life. But that kind of thing, which last week I said, I suggested, because I talked about Gnosticism, I'm not going to do that today, but that's just a form of Christian Gnosticism, and we don't realize that. that when, we, when we divide physical and humanness and all that we are with all of our knees and toes and eyes and ears and mouth into these separate compartments as if part of our bodies go in part places, but we're a whole body people in a whole place that just happens to work or happens to have a home or happens to have school or happens to have these things, we cannot survive fully if we manage life in compartments. It's what leads us to say things like, what happens in Vegas? Now, many things have contributed to this, and I would suggest, and as I spent eight years in in the business world as a business executive, it was something that I had to push back on. I would suggest that business has contributed to this compartmentalization with an assembly line mentality so that we divide our lives into separate functional sectors, right? We're taught that faith is a private matter. That's what we're taught. And that it doesn't have a place in the workplace. That you don't talk religion and politics at the table. Or that our biblical values can't stand up to the hard realities of the business world. And so we compartmentalize our life. And faith is just one of the several compartments. And we imagine somehow that we're in charge of all of these things and that these boxes of compartments report to us. 
And we're all about categories and compartments. Our society builds itself upon categories of separation and belonging. There's male gender. There's female gender. There's, there's all other forms and expressions of gender. There's all other forms and expressions of race and ethnicity. It's why we break things up in the secular and sacred. There's secular music and Christian music. And it's why we talk about life in terms of work life and spiritual life and social life. And it seems simple and it seems innocent, but I've come to believe that it's dangerous. And if you track it out, it's not healthy. It's how we end up compromising ethics. It's why we can be one way at work and another way at church and then another way in business. We can be generous here and selfish here. We can be kind here and cutthroat and ruthless and prude here or crude here. And it's not giving life to our humanness. And we say things like, it's not personal, it's what? It's business. And this appeals to our survival instinct and our need to manage life, which is okay. Now, I'm not talking about, real quick, I'm not talking about how we sometimes compartmentalize our faith, like never reading the Scripture outside of the church gathering, or never praying outside of the church building, or never talking to people about our faith outside of the church building. I'm not talking about that, though it certainly works its way into that kind of compartmentalizing. I'm talking about something deeper, something that leads us to a less-than-human life, a human life that doesn't look like the life we see in Jesus when God became human. For Jesus, there was just life. There wasn't this life and that life. There wasn't his carpenter life and his religious life. It's in that dark-skinned Palestinian Jewish body that the God-made human we call Jesus poses a question to his followers that I feel like is worth asking ourselves from time to time. It's in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 15. Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he looks at his disciples and he says this. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. See, what's easy for us to forget is that looking for a Messiah was a way of life back then. That was their life. They were looking for a savior and king who would come and make everything right that had been made wrong, especially delivering them from the Roman Empire. They were coming looking for a savior and king that would bring them hope, that would bring salvation. And not just in a spiritual sense. Matter of fact, contextually, they don't even think about it in the same way we do in terms of spiritual senses. For them, it was always holistic. It wasn't spiritual and then physical. It was holistic. Salvation was about the whole person. And they wanted this Savior and King, this Messiah, to make the law and the Torah and the writings and the prophets real to them, to begin the work of restoring what had been cracked in humanity, to do what the prophets tried to do and convince God's people to restore all of society and set right what had been made wrong, where the widow and the poor and the orphan would find provision, where the outcast would be included and the captives would be set free. He would help them understand what God was up to in the world. Looking for a Messiah was a way of life then. 
But God's ordinary humanness made it difficult to see Him as the King. It made it difficult to see Him as Messiah. His own disciples didn't understand Him. His family couldn't explain Him. The religious leaders couldn't stand Him. And so God, in this Palestinian, dark-skinned Jewish body, was called a drunkard, labeled out of his mind, rejected by the religious right, lambasted by the religious left. He didn't fit what they had come to understand their lives to be about. He did not fit the life compartments that they were even committed to. And so Jesus was right there, but they didn't see him. They missed him. He wasn't what they expected or what they wanted. And it was easier to keep looking for a Savior than to look for a Savior who would also be the King. And I wonder if sometimes we're that way. If it's just easier for us to look for a Savior rather than to have a Savior who is also King. I mean, what if our tendency to compartmentalize our lives into categories of work, home, social, spiritual, school has stopped us, inadvertently, unknown to us, stopped us or slowed us down from seeing the king for who he is and unknowingly led us down a path where we've started looking for another? What if the compartmentalizing of our lives is a sign that we're still looking for a different kind of savior rather than a savior who is king? Because if compartmentalizing our lives is so that we can manage our lives and put it in a category so that we can kind of be in control of it, where's the lordship of Jesus in that thing? How is it we can pay the price here but not pay the price there? How is it we can treat people this way in this sector of our life, but then treat people this way in this sector of our life? How is it we can spend all of our time at work and not at home? How is it we can find ourselves thinking that our identity is bound up in our grades and our, and our outcomes and not who God says we are? How do those things happen? I mean, what if some of us, deep down in our lives, want a Savior we can shape to the contours of our own desires, pleasures, and expectations, our own hopes and dreams and beliefs on immorality, our own version of economics? See, the reality of it is, the praise team and everybody here, us included, any of us are capable of worshiping a projection of our own emotions. Jesus becomes all I need only if I really want to trust Him enough to be all I need. If not, I'll look for something else or someone else that I think can tangibly be what I need. Something or someone I can see and touch. And compartmentalizing my life makes that possible. It makes it easier to have a Savior rather than a Savior who is also King. And if I'm looking for a Savior and not a Savior who is King, I don't have to believe that Jesus is as holy as He says He is. I don't have to believe that He's as gracious or forgiving as He says He is. I don't have to love my enemies. I don't have to deal with what He teaches or what He calls sin or what He calls an obedient life. If I'm only looking for a Savior and not a Savior who is also King, I'm free to believe what my faith, my spiritual growth, whatever I want to call it, my walk, I'm free to believe that it's wholly determined by my own strength or wholly determined by what my church does or doesn't do. If my child isn't faithful to Jesus, I want to blame the student ministry, for example. If I'm not growing in my faith, I want to blame some other aspect of the community, for example. 
And that's dangerous ground. Because then I'm free to believe that my work life can be separated from my faith life, that can be separated from my social life, that can be separated from my studies, that can be separated from my marriage, that can be separated from my politics. And as a child of God, I have access to Savior, to this God who is Savior and King anytime, at any place, but I'm just too preoccupied managing the areas of my life. Too busy to read the scriptures or pray by myself or pray with others or worship him through the week. It's much easier to keep looking for a savior than to have a savior who is king. If you put off doing something different or making different decisions now, now I can blame other people for my problems. I can take matters into my own hands and I can even compromise or come as close to compromising what I believe based upon values and integrity as close as possible. It's just easier to keep looking for a Savior than to have a Savior who is king. And, and then it becomes easy to say things like, if I, if then, when, if I, then I, if I, then I, when I, then I, if they, then I. It's easy to then just put things off. And compartmentalization encourages us to keep looking for a Savior, to look for hope and for love and joy and peace and purpose in all the wrong places. And we miss our full-bodied humanness, as if somehow we can divide our hearts and minds into all these categories, but we can't. We live fully where we are, always. So how do you think about your life? How are you and I making choices? How are we organizing our lives? Are we doing it in compartments? How do we talk about it? Do we act one way at work or in class? Another way at home, a different way on the weekends, a different way in that relationship I'm in, and then a different way when we come to the table of the Lord? I mean, what if some of us have inadvertently, unknowingly, stopped seeing Jesus as both Savior and King and have started looking for another? I mean, life is always moving forward, man. I mean, the traditions are the troubles of challenges of this broken world. They're going to find us. They're going to invite us to take a different road from which Jesus is on. It's going to be this road of compromise or sin or hopelessness or faithfulness and faithlessness. And, and regardless of what lies ahead, it's not going to be the road that the Savior and King is walking. And it'll result in a detour. See, because what I've come to understand about my way of life is when I start to compartmentalize my life, it leads to detours. It's just an easy thing to do. I become Fred the salesman when I was in sales. I become Fred the minister, the pastor. Fred the 3E guy. And I start putting on hats. That's another thing we say when we compartmentalize. We put on hats. We got one head. And so I know we don't think we can put on hats. My whole thing is, what if you have a hat that has all of that in it? I mean, is Jesus only Lord of one hat and a little bit of Lord over another hat? Like all of a sudden, Fred the pastor is more holy than Fred the... Look, nothing, nothing holy about me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm a mess. Y'all know this. But every decision that we make is reflective of something. And Jesus wants to shape us 
our desires, our pleasures, with our hands and fingers, our feet and toes, our eyes, ears, nose, and mouth, all of that, all of that that we bring to a thing, whether it's a work thing, a, ho- uh, a home thing, or a church thing, or a, all of that, a relationship, all of those body parts, all of that presence, all of that, Jesus wants to be Lord of that even there. But we're thinking in compartments. And it's easy to wall Jesus off. And so we inadvertently start looking for a Savior rather than realize we have one as King. And I'll tell you, it's easier to keep looking for a Savior than to have one as Savior and King when your important relationships have fallen apart, isn't it? I mean, it's more difficult to fully believe and live into the promise of God's Word that I can have real hope that my relationship can be restored because God's love has been poured out into my heart, Romans 5 tells me, and that the fruit of the Spirit is love, Galatians 5 tells me. But... When you have a Savior and King, here's the thing. You're faced with the decision to trust them now. So it's just easier to keep looking for one than to have one. It's easier to keep looking for a Savior than to have one when you, when you do not know how you're going to pay your bills next month. It's more difficult to fully believe and live into the promise of Jesus' word that if I seek first His rule and His reign in my life and serve Him despite my circumstances, that I'll have what I need. Maybe not all that I want, but at least what I need. That I don't have to negotiate my home life for that, y'all. When I first came here to serve, I had to work at Chick-fil-A to make ends meet. We are carrying the mortgage from Amarillo. We had a little baby. I had to make biscuits at Chick-fil-A for almost two years. And I'd get up about 4 o'clock, 3.30, 4 o'clock, get there at 4.30 and get ready to make biscuits. And I would get home, and I'd be done at 8 or 10 o'clock, and then I'd try to do pastor stuff. And then I'd go home, and I would go to bed at, what, 7? And it was to provide. But I was getting tired, and it got to the point where I realized I wasn't spending time with Allison, and I wasn't seeing Ian. And the thing is, is this Chick-fil-A thing was hard. Look, man, Chick-fil-A made me shave my goatee. Like Allison had never seen my chin in her life. And so for two years, Allison stared at my chin, wondering, what is that? Where has that been? And I had to do that. I had to do that for two years. And I was tired. I was tired. I was tired physically. I was tired of Allison staring at my chin. I was tired of all of that. I mean, it's the Lord's chicken and all, that and Popeye's, but I had to do it. But I realized that I had to quit. And Alice and I were talking like, we don't know how we're going to make ends meet. But I can't be so tired that I'm not present with my son. And that I'm not present with my wife. And the Lord just had to provide. Had to trust. Seek first His reign and His righteousness and all these things will be added to Him. Had to trust Him. It's easier to keep looking for a Savior thinking I'm the Savior to make it work than to have one right now who's king. That's the hard thing. I'm wrestling with this. I wrestle with this. And it's easy to wrestle with it when you start compartmentalizing your life. Then to just say it all belongs. Because it's got to be more than a song we sing. But that there's a fruit in my life that says it all belongs to Christ, who is Lord. It's actually not all on me. When you have a Savior and King, you're forced with the decision to trust Him now. I struggle with this, man. I'm speaking to this out of struggle, too. 
It's easier to keep looking for a Savior than to have one who is Savior and King when your life is filled with constant trials and struggles too, isn't it? It's more difficult to believe the promise of God's words in James 1, 2 through 3 that says, even in the midst of trials, we can find joy because the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us and this peace can be found because this testing of our faith, of our allegiance to God produces this endurance and this endurance leads us to becoming all that God made us to be. This mature, faith-filled, grace-covered follower of Jesus. It's more difficult to believe the promises of God's words that peace is mine within me and that this peace can have an effect on my life that surpasses all explanation. When you have a Savior and King, you're faced with the decision to trust Him now. And that begins with breaking down the walls that divide our lives into compartments. See, it's easier to keep looking for a Savior than to have one who's Savior and King when we're faced with this fear of uncertainty. It's more difficult to fully believe and live into the promise of God's words that we are loved, saved, redeemed, and restored by God's grace in Jesus alone when Jesus declared on the cross that it is finished. And see, because Jesus said it is finished, I will finish. Because God will finish what he began in me, just like he will in you. When you have a Savior and King, you're faced with the decision to trust him now. And we have to begin by breaking down the walls that separate our lives into compartments. So, I've been wondering in my life and in ours together, I wonder if we need to be reminded to stop looking for a Savior and King. He's not a better job, a better spouse, a more obedient child, or a new friend. He is Jesus. He's come. I wonder if we need to be reminded to stop looking for a Savior and King. He's not a bigger house, a nicer car, more money, a fitter or slimmer body. Our nicer clothes to adorn your fitter or slimmer body. He's Jesus. He's come. I wonder if we need to be reminded to stop looking for a Savior and King. He's not good worship music. Even though I was feeling that dance on that Echo song. Like I was working up a sweat in church. That doesn't happen here very often. I kind of like it. Right, Robin? Me and you, we almost can't be controlled in the front too, right? Right. <laughs> Old Dave, he, he was trying, y'all, Dave was trying to let his inner Pentecostal out, but he just, he was trying. I'm sure, I wish I could have seen that. I bet you were stepping a little bit, Dave, weren't you? You were. But he's not good worship music. He's not good preaching. He's Jesus, and he's come. I wonder if we need to be reminded to stop looking for a Savior and King, because some of us are so focused on his second coming, we've missed his first. I wonder if we need to be reminded to stop looking for a Savior and a King because He's present and redeeming, restoring, and He holds all things together, include your life. And just in case, just to be very relevant and concrete to drive this home, I wonder if we need to be reminded to stop looking for a Savior and King because if we remember that soon after Jesus' birth, He and His family had to flee to Egypt for safety, from a ruthless government as refugees, we can't worship a divine refugee on Sunday and deny refugees on Monday. Jesus wants to live in our hearts, but please, let's not make the mistake that that's Him saying He wants to fit inside our lives. He wants our life to fit inside Him. He's not going to fit inside of our preferences, no matter how hard we try. 
Because he's God. And him being God makes him unfathomably beautiful, wondrously complicated, but wholly worthy of worship. As Paul said, God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge are so deep. They are as mysterious as his judgments, and they are as hard to track as his paths. Who has known the Lord's mind? Or who has been his mentor? Who has given him a gift and has been paid back by him? All things are from him and through him and for him. May the glory be to him forever. Amen. All things, all things in your life are for him, from him, and through him. All things in your life. You do not have to worry about managing it. All you and I have to do is be faithful with it. We don't have to control it. We have to actually learn to submit it. And one of the greatest acts of submission that we get to experience is a practice of the submission that God gave us in that dark-skinned Palestinian Jewish body when he went to the cross. When we hold the bread, we hold the bread that is the body of God. When we hold the cup, we hold the cup that is the blood of God. That was given freely for us in its fullness so that we might find the fullness of life in our human bodies. Come, receive the gift of the Christ. Receive the body and the blood of Jesus into your body. And may God make us more human like Jesus.